G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. The Story it was interesting, the first day that Daryl went back to work after his illness, um, his workers didn't recognise him. He had changed such a lot, he'd lost so much weight. He had shaven off his beard, they had shaven it at the hospital, he had a, a goatee beard and they'd shaven that off, uh, which did make him look a little bit different. But he had changed such a lot, lost so much weight, he'd lost 12 kilos and he was almost unrecognisable. <laughs> G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Today, we have part two of Shelley Scowen's conversation with Anne Smith in New Zealand about her husband Daryl's severe illness. As we heard last time, it began with flu-like symptoms and then gradually became worse. At this point in the story, Daryl is in hospital in dire circumstances and sharing how things progressed from there. Finally, by the Thursday night... I went to, we had another doctor's meeting and the doctor said the word been, we'd been waiting for and that he was stable. Yes. So until then it had been a bit like a lottery. They don't, this is the thing I learned about hospitals is that they don't actually have all the answers. They just try things mm. and they try everything they can. Yeah. And they pull out all the stops and they do whatever they can. But because his body had been flooded with antibiotics initially with the pneumonia, um, they couldn't grow a culture of this infection that was growing in his pleural cavity. So they drained 500 mils of infection off, um, but they couldn't grow anything from it. So they didn't know what bug they were dealing with, so they didn't know which antibiotic to use. So until then, they'd just been trying different scenarios, and it changed every 12 hours. And they were actually just um, taking stabs in the dark. Yeah. And this is a game where the prayer came in because they took the right stab in the dark (laughs) and eventually and uh, in time and so um, the infection stopped growing and um, they started to make some headway and so it was pretty fast headway too once he started improving he improved yeah he got out of the real danger zone pretty quickly didn't he he did phenomenally quickly in fact the staff there said that they'd never seen anything before and that's saying something, because in ICU, I think, in Wellington, where yeah. they get the worst of the worst cases, everyone in, in that unit is in multi-organ failure. Wow. It's the critical care unit. So everyone, and that was what I learned about that word, multi-organ failure. They said, you know, if you've had a heart attack, you know, then you go to the, um, the heart ward. If you've got lung problems, then you go to that ward or whatever. But if you've got more than one of those things going on at once... Uh, then you come to this ward, and that's multi-organ failure. And so, um, yeah, suddenly his kidneys started. He was on dialysis, and they turned the dialysis machine off, and his kidneys restarted. And then they turned the noradrenaline down, and his heart started beating by itself normally. And um, they eventually took it. Well, when I say eventually, it was only a day later, actually. They started to take him off the breathing machine and that took a couple of days to bring him out of his coma and um and take him off the breathing machine 
but over the course of two days he came off all life support and we were told at that stage that he would probably be in that critical care unit for two weeks, one to two weeks, so I was mentally planning what I was going to be doing with the family at home while I stayed in Wellington with him for two weeks and mm, and tricky. so we got told that um, sort of like midway through the day on um, Sunday, so Sunday was his first conscious day and then on Monday morning I went in to see him and they said we're flying you home today wow. <laughs> and we were home by lunchtime. Wow. So his, his recovery was so fast. Um, it was just amazing. And the doctors put it down to the fact that he was young and fit and healthy. But we put it yeah, down to prayer. Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> yeah. they said that they had... And near. credit to the doctors as well for, for Absolutely. all the work that they did. Absolutely. Um, so credit there. But like you said, you know, they haven't seen that kind of improvement. In They've never seen it before. Him. Yeah. 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 That's incredible. And so then he was based in the Nelson Hospital um, for a few weeks, was it? Yeah. Yeah, he was. In fact, I can't really remember how long he was there for, maybe another week, and then he came home. And then uh, when he came home, he had a little relapse, so there was still a pocket. It was really, really scary. It was very scary because um, you just don't know where it's leading. Yeah. So there was a pocket of infection somewhere, and they didn't know where it was. And so his temperature started spiking again, Mm. and they knew that there was this infection somewhere. So he had lots of scans and things to try and find it. Um, And in the end, they never did find it. But he became well. But it was um, a long... So he was readmitted again. And then he was was so low, he had to have blood transfusions because his system had got so low. And then after that, he came home and there was a very long period of rehabilitation. He basically, like he was walking with a Zimmer frame and, and things like that. So he was, I, I... That's humbling for a young, fit, healthy guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I say I know what he looks like when he's going to be 80 years old now because <laughs> <laughs> he pretty much looked like that then. Even inside, yeah. So, um, and that's challenging times for you. Like you had three probably young teenage kids. Uh, mm. You still had the business that you had mm. to keep running. Um, and you had to look after a very sick husband. Mm. And a very challenging that, time. Yeah. But your church really stepped up in that time as well. During the course of our time in Wellington, our home was flooded with food, which the kids thought was fantastic. <laughs> One of the <laughs> which young... is nice even for them to have that little bit of hope or, you know, that something to look forward to. Hey? Well, it was. A teen, the way to a teenager's heart, I have two teenage boys, the way to a teenager's heart is through food. And so they felt... <laughs> It was always exciting to see what had been left on the doorstep that day or what was going to be for tea that night, you know, all this lovely, amazing food that came in. Yeah. Um, one particular person had made up school lunch treats. So she decided that, that the most practical way that she could help was to make up um, some lunches for or interesting things to go on lunches. Oh, because when you don't have a lot of time in the morning and one of the young women had shifted into our home um, to look after the kids while I was away. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, lunches, school lunches are hard work. And so, you know, they had all these yummy things in their school lunches that they weren't used to. <laughs> um, and so they, you know, they had lots of little treats like that. It was also um, my daughter's birthday during that time. Oh, and wow. uh, so we were in Wellington during that time, and she was devastated. She was turning uh, ten, I think it was. So, 
So she was um, devastated that we weren't going to be there for her birthday, yeah. but um, people rallied around, and it wasn't just our church, it was the community as well, which was pretty amazing. Um, the newspaper that Daryl advertises in for his business, they brought her a birthday cake. Really? Which was just lovely, yeah, professionally, you know, made birthday cake. Wow. And, um, yeah, she got very spoiled for that birthday. The other thing that happened while we were away was she was, um, they, their school had their school production, and it only happens every two years, and they've been doing a lot of work towards it. And it actually opened on the night that we flew to Wellington. And I had to break the news to her that not only were we, you know, going to Wellington, we weren't going to be able to come to her production. And is her father's critically ill? Yeah, How yeah. How you going to perform after that? Yeah. So um, Daryl's mother stayed behind. She wanted to come to Wellington with us, obviously, to yeah. be with her son, but she decided her job was to stay behind and, and care for the children. Mm -hmm. um, and so she did that for the first few days. So she went to the production, but also some people from church that Holly knew, some of the older teenage kids and things, they turned up to try and buy door sales for the production to be there just so that, you know, she would have people in the audience oh. that were supporting her. And that means such a lot to her. Yeah. Um, so then the number and the types of things that people did was were very creative, but very, you know, just so touching. So, um, you know, the, the main thing that they did was to pray and pray quite fervently. But during the rehabilitation, things would happen like um, a bag of kindling would end up on the doorstep. And that's actually what Daryl remembers the most when he talks about this experience and what people did. He remembers the bag of kindling firewood that turned up on the doorstep. We don't know who did it. Someone cut it for us and put it there. And that just made lighting the fire so much easier and um, it's those little things that just matter so much. Mm. And uh, there was grocery vouchers left in the letterbox as well, which was very useful because actually when you go through something like this, the financial consequences, yes. uh, it's actually the last thing you want to be thinking about at the time. Yeah. But it, financially it did hit us. And so grocery vouchers in the letterbox from we don't know again. Um People sent cards and just well wishes, you know, for, uh, which just makes you realise when it's really hard, when you're getting really frustrated with your um, progress. I mean, when he first came home, it was a huge achievement to just be able to walk to the letterbox and back. You know, that was mm. a big day, the day he could do that. The first day he tried to do that, he got halfway down there and couldn't get back again. You're listening to The Story. Today, Shelley Scowen is chatting with Anne Smith in New Zealand about her husband Daryl's severe illness and about his recovery. Next, we'll hear about the role the community played when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax and this is The Story. We're continuing with Shelley Scowan's conversation with Anne Smith in New Zealand. Before the break, we heard how her husband Daryl finally began to recover from multi-organ failure. Next, we'll hear about the role the community played in supporting them through the crisis. 
You know, when you realise that people are still thinking of you um, two, three weeks, four weeks down the track, it means a lot. Yeah. Um, there was just so many different practical ways that people helped us. Someone planted our vegetable garden. It was springtime by then, and someone planted our vegetable garden came, and the same person actually filled the holes in the driveway with gravel. We had some potholes there. And, um, you know, he knew that Daryl wasn't going to be up to doing that for months and months. Yeah. So he came and did it. He didn't even ask. He just came and did it. Um, yeah. Another group of people came and did a working bee in the garden. It was that time of the year where you need to be pruning there. I've got fruit trees and the fruit trees needed to be pruned. The roses needed to be pruned. They're not important jobs, but it weighs heavily on your mind when you are feeling a little bit overwhelmed by you have this sick husband and you can't do everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. It wouldn't have been the end of the world if it hadn't happened, but it did happen. They made it happen, and then you know, going forward, it meant that I had nice roses in the summer. You know, yes. <laughs> because they'd done that for me. In but the also, spring. every time you look outside, we're sitting in your house now, and you've got beautiful glass doors everywhere, and you can see the garden. Yeah, I can understand that. Probably every time you had have looked out those windows, you'd be going, "Oh, there's that other job that I still haven't gotten to." Yeah, that was just all wiped away because someone came in, spent a few hours in your garden. Yeah, and it's just another of those things off your mind. It was overwhelming. Those yeah. sorts of things. Um, I'd actually started during the course of all this. I'd handed mine before. Well, before Daryl got sick, I'd handed my notice in at my job and was about to start oh. a new full time job. And that involved. He really timed it well, didn't he? Oh, it was just incredible. <laughs> So I actually ended up having to go to Wellington for training just at the time that he was relapsing, that oh, he had that no. relapse in hospital. So there was people that came and visited him during the day while I wasn't here just to check out that he'd managed to get himself right. some lunch that he had. Uh, so, you know, we had an army of people and people called in at work at his business and we've got a big stack of business cards, um, all the local business owners called in and said, I don't know what I can do, but if I can pay the bills for you, if I can run your mail to the mailbox each day, if I can do anything, you know, yeah. let me know. And these were, we have a tyre business, but these were electricians and plumbers and, <laughs> you know, different uh, trades. Um, and, yeah, people stepped in to help at the business too, which was huge because I ended up having to interview for the new Oh. Worker, uh, not knowing anything about tyres myself, <laughs> really. Um, but you pre pretended you did. Yeah, yeah. And a, again, another tyre shop uh, who, you know, possibly could be seen as being the opposition, um, came in and sat in with the interview for me, with me, really? to um, interview the new fella so that we could get him on board and, and work while Daryl was still rehabilitating. Oh, so, wow. It was interesting the first day that Daryl went back to work after his illness. Um, his workers didn't recognise him. He had changed such a lot. He'd lost so much weight. And um, Josh, his worker, uh, looked at him and said, Who are you? You're not Daryl, are you? He thought he must be Daryl's brother or something. <laughs> he had shaven off his beard. They had shaven it at the hospital. He had a, a goatee beard. And they'd shaven that off, uh, which did make him look a little bit different. But he had yeah. changed such a lot, lost so much weight. He'd lost 12 kilos. And... He was almost unrecognisable. <laughs> so, yeah, there was That's amazing. many changes. Yeah. And 
Daryl was saying that it's gone on to have quite an impact lasting since then. So this all happened, um, the main sickness was July 2012. Mm -hmm. So about three years since then. And he said it kind of seems to have changed the culture of the church since then, where people are a bit more um, just looking for the needs and Mm. a lot more willing to just jump in and help and and like prayerful and practical support Mm. to families in need. Yes, I think people realise that what they did really made a difference. Mm. And that you don't actually have to do a lot. You just do whatever you're good at doing. So Mm. some people were really good at making that food, but other people were really good at filling the potholes in our driveway. And so, you know, it's whatever you've got in your hand. Whatever you can do actually makes a difference, and it makes a huge difference. You know, some people made beautiful cards, as I said before. You know, we got lots and lots of cards, and they have a way with words. Mm. So that's what they did. They wrote encouragement to him. Mm. Um, and yeah so there was many many things and people realise that actually what they do do makes a huge difference and everybody can do something yes so yeah. very hum- big or small everybody can do something yeah. to help yeah. yeah and it might be a phone call if you don't feel comfortable with that it might be a grocery voucher it might be you know anything at all there were many many practical ways that people helped us and of course the prayer was Outstanding. <laughs> That's what well. got him through. Yeah, yeah, got you yeah. all through. Yeah. Yes, I do because we really he... did walk through the valley of the shadow of, the, of death, and yeah. um, you know, and I think and God's rod and staff comforted you. Yes, yeah. yes, absolutely, above and beyond. The interesting thing with that was there were other things. I was very strong in the hospital. I never cried once or got emotional once. I do now. I get very emotional mm-hmm. now when I talk about it. But um, during that time, I was very, very strong. And it was a God-given gift, I believe, at that time. But I was only strong for Daryl. There were other things going on in the hospital that I wasn't strong about. Mm. There was a boy that also had multi-organ failure. He also had the flu. A 16-year-old boy who was the same age as my son. And he was in the room down the corridor. And I couldn't handle at all the fact that he was sick. I couldn't think about him. And when we were in the waiting room with his relatives and everything, I couldn't handle the pain they were in. Mm-hmm. But I could handle my own. Really? Yeah. And there was a little baby um, there as well that was on life support. And um, with that 16-year-old boy, when I went to leave, when we flew out that morning, I was desperate to know if he was okay. And actually a funny thing had happened the day before, the Sunday, because when you come in, you have to wait in the waiting room to make sure that everything's okay before you go into the room. And all the relatives, he, he was a Polynesian boy and he had a very large farnel that was there. And they would uh, sing in the waiting room and they would pray. And it was we were always sort of sidling up to them because to get this wonderful, prayer, yeah. yeah, it was just an amazing thing. Yeah. And we went in on the Sunday morning and they weren't there. And we were devastated. We thought that meant that the boy had died. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Come twelve thirty, they all flooded in, and of course they were all at church. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> but during those hours in the morning, we thought the boy had died, yeah. and we were devastated for them that that uh, you know that that might have happened. Yeah. So it changes your perspective on life, doesn't it? I, it was quite a few years ago now. I spent just a little bit of time um, with a friend's um, baby in neonatal ICU, uh, but well, it must have been pediatrics or something because there were a few older children there as well, but. It puts your own problems into perspective, doesn't it? When you stroll through, you know, a yes. ward like that. Yes. Okay, I'm not going to whinge about my problems. Yes, it certainly does. And it was a great shake-up 
uh, for Daryl and my marriage, actually. Yeah. Because we'd been married for 25 years and, you know, we're um, in the thick of teenage children and um, running around being the taxis and uh, we don't work, we didn't work on our relationship as much as we could have at the Mm -hmm. time and you don't value each other as much as you perhaps should because you're just too busy. Yeah. And, you know, you had a very busy life. And um, something like this happens. And in those four hours of what I call my dark time, before I had any help when I was in Wellington and was faced with the fact that I might be a widow, I looked at that in my head, you know, and what would it like? What would it be like to not have Daryl anymore? Mm. And it was a huge thing. I decided that there's no way in the world I didn't want Daryl anymore, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I was desperate to to still be married to Daryl, you know, and um, and to have to have our life together for the rest of our life. Mm-hmm. And it's actually something I've struggled with a lot since then. I struggled with the grace, the fact that how come we were so blessed when I know other women my age who are widows? Yeah. How come we got through uh, when other people didn't? Why were we lavish with the miracle when other people mm-hmm. haven't? And um, and this why am I so lucky question just used to circulate in my head all the time. And I couldn't kind of get past it until someone said to me one day, they said, maybe it's not about you. <laughs> it's not yeah. about you being so blessed. It's about what God did with that whole situation. Yeah. And it was about and here what we are talking about it today as well. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's bringing glory to him even, you know, by our conversation, let alone the countless people in this yeah. community that have been just blessed and touched um, and the witness that it's been too. Yes, yes it has. I bumped into an old friend of mine um, who doesn't go to church anymore and struggles to have a belief and I bumped into her in the supermarket and she said to me, I haven't prayed for many, many years but that night I got down on my knees and prayed. Yeah. So, you know, maybe it wasn't about us. Yeah. You know, it was about the bigger picture, about what God can do with a church, what God can do with his people. Yeah. And um, and the sovereign hand of God in people's lives. Yeah. It's and I think that's what it comes down to, too. When it comes to serious illness, um, that God takes some people home and he lets some people live, and that's God being God. Yeah. Yeah, it is. We don't always understand his ways, but we need no. to just let God be God. That's right. And it came down to that where I had to say, okay, God, I don't know why you've saved him. Yeah. I actually asked him that question, Daryl, that question. I said, why do you think you've been saved from this? You know, what do you want to do with your life now? He was still in the rehabilitation stage at that stage and <laughs> still struggling to even be living. And you're asking the big question. And I'm like, you know, maybe we've got some big mission we're meant to do together yeah. or something, you know. And he said, I just want to be well and I want to be a dad. Yeah. I want to be the best dad. Yeah. I can be. He just wanted the ordinary things in life, you know, not yeah. not the big mission that God God had given him a second chance. And thank you for sharing your story with us this morning. It's a huge story, and uh, I'm sure even just you know reliving it again has brought up those those emotions <laughs> again. Yeah, it does. Um, but thank you for sharing. I trust it's been a real encouragement to many of our listeners today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> that was Shelley Scowen chatting with Anne Smith in New Zealand about the life-changing journey her family went on after her husband Daryl nearly died from a severe illness. As we just heard, all her husband wanted to do after he got his health back was to be a good dad and husband. 
Sometimes it takes going through a crisis to remind us to get back to the basics of life and the things that are really important. As it says in the Bible, the Lord has told you what he requires of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Some basics for all of us to live by. Well, thanks for joining us for the conclusion of Shelley Scowen's chat with Anne Smith. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. I mentor a lot of young guys here, and I ask them all these same questions all the time. I just, I want you to answer this question, but when you answer this question, you cannot answer it with, I don't know. The question is, what's your 12-month plan for your life? (laughs) (laughs) 99% say, I don't know. And I said, that's exactly right. I basically knew the answer, but let's, let's sit down and work out a plan for your life. Jeff Dakers is a man dedicated to helping the less fortunate in his community and as the CEO of a food barn and training program, he's able to help many people. We'll hear his inspiring story next time. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. 